you know that being able to adapt your home makes you three times happier with the space overall, according to Resi's Happy Home Survey? Well, this week, we're going to be talking all about making your home adaptable with Julia Park, architect at Levitt Bernstein, and Resi's very own Mark Hood. Julia, Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Nice to be here. Julia, so most of us place lots of emphasis on the size of our homes and how that affects our happiness. But we recently found out at Resi that actually being able to change your space is more important to most people than the size of, say, your smallest bedroom. Why is that? I think there are a number of reasons why flexibility or adaptability matter to people. And I think the most obvious is that we all have different ideas about what makes a perfect home. No two people, no two households, no two couples have exactly the same ideas about that. There may be common strands, and and indeed there usually are. But if you imagine a a street of Victorian terrace houses all, all looking identical from the outside... If you were to go into that, uh, each of those houses in that street, I can almost guarantee that no two would be alike. So that's one reason. So why have we got so hung up about the size of a house or the size of a flat? Well, I do think size matters. I've actually done a lot of work on space standards. And in particular, if rooms are too small, <laughs> we can argue about what too small means, They start to feel uncomfortable, particularly if you're using that room to socialise or to eat in. It's a bit different if it's it's a study and you're just sitting down in that space and you don't need much room. But I think our bedrooms are quite small in this country as well, and particularly if children are sharing and also playing in their bedrooms, that can be quite limiting. So I do think space matters, and I actually think space is one of the keys to giving us flexibility because the size of a, a room is often fixed. So it's quite important that it's a good proportion and a reasonable size, unless it's easily changed. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So Mark, what are some of the key ways that we can adapt our homes, this, you know, the most common ways? Well, I actually feel like now more than ever, this is becoming so, so relevant in this sort of coronavirus world. I was speaking to a friend's mother at a barbecue very recently, and she was saying how they've transformed the beneath their stairs, put in a desk, and all of a sudden you've got a, a lovely, a lovely study area, which is which is very flexible and and great for the the kids and for the, the their parents who are working from home. I also think it's sort of there is an age old thing where the most common thing nowadays is your sort of open plan living. It's it's everybody wants it. It's on everyone's wish list. But again, it's coronavirus is questioning that. I feel like whenever the parents are at the at the dining table working, they maybe they want that sort of that break in in the room, away from the living space, away from the kitchen. You may actually put a wall up there now, and then remove the wall in, in the future. So I think it's just that question mark over the open plan of living is is it's a big one. Mm, that's interesting, Julia. What do you think about open plan living? I think it's become very fashionable and I understand why. Personally, I feel it it suits us at certain times in our lives. It's, I mean, it suits some people uh, all of the time, but I found it useful when the children were very young because I could keep an eye on them in a nice big room. As they grow older, they start to need their own space. You want, you want to lock them away? <laughs> yeah, well, just just too many things going on. 
you know, somebody's watching television, somebody's cooking the supper, someone's trying to do their homework, someone else is on the phone. It can be a bit stressful and chaotic. So I'm very much with Mark in terms of designing homes that can be open plan, living spaces that can be open plan or can be carved up to suit where you are in your life. And I think what's very important, given that, is that we put enough windows into open plan living spaces because if we've only got one window, our options for cutting it up when the time is right are very, very limited. So what I personally do, and, and lots of my colleagues do, mm. I, I start with the cellular layout, separate rooms, either two or three living spaces. So it might be, typically it might be a, a living dining space and a separate sitting space. And then if you do that, you can easily take away that wall in your head and on your drawing in the knowledge that it can go back, anybody could put it back any time in the future. And if you think about the life we expect from current housing, we need every home we build today to last at least 200 years. You're not talking about just one family living there. You're talking about so true. probably 20 households in that time. Many more people and many, many more visitors. So the idea that a, a, a home should be you know, fixed in one configuration for that length of time is pretty, pretty outdated, I think. There'll be robots, won't they, living with us? <laughs> but I also think that the most important thing there is that it is easy. As long as you look at this at the very earliest stages, mm. it is easy to change later down the line. So if you, if you forget about it at the design stages, it becomes much harder. You need to put a new window in or you need to change an opening. But if at the very, very start on the paper, if you say, I want this room to be flexible over the next, yeah. like Julia says, 100 years, then it becomes easy. So it's just yeah. about nailing it early on. I very often find that as well that I, I come up with more than one layout for a, for a footprint and I'm torn as to which one um, is better. And that, that's natural because, um, assuming they're both sensible layouts, I'm quite sure that some people would choose one and other people would choose the other. So I'm very keen to explore how we can record those different internal possibilities and make them available through time. I mean, one, one suggestion is that you could bind alternative layouts into title deeds, for example, so that anybody buying that house in the future could see the other option, which is very difficult to visualise unless you're a trained professional. But if you can see uh, another layout in front of you, you can imagine it, and it might well be better for you in your household. Yeah, that's fascinating. I suppose we'd be very short-sighted actually thinking about how we build houses in many ways, haven't we? Only thinking for the one family that they're initially made for, but we've got to think longer term. And Julia, I think you mentioned to me that it's also really important for the environment that we think about the longer term mm. flexibility of a property. Can you tell me some more about that? Well, one of the worst things we can do in, in terms of climate change is demolish houses and rebuild them after 50 or 60 years so a large part of the reason for them to last at least 200 years is to be sustainable and actually if we continue to build at current building rates our home every home we build today would need to last 2,000 years if that doesn't focus the mind on flexibility I, I don't know what does. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mark, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I just feel like there's so much existing stock, which if it was put up against today's sort of standards, it doesn't meet them. But with the right investment and in the right areas, it, it can meet them. But if you if you have these buildings which have been there for 60, 70 years, if you were to add roof insulation, um, wall insulation, solar panels, good windows, you can bring up to these modern standards and they will have another 50 years in them. Instead of instead of a developer coming in and just knocking them all down, like Julia says, and it's just so bad. They are good buildings. They're they're made well. They're 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 good sort of foundations. But it's the sustainable aspects which we can improve. So yeah, that it's a big thing. To Retrofit is a big thing, and I think it it needs to become more widely discussed. And we grow old, don't we? Yes. I was going to come on to that a bit later, actually. So just before we move on, if people say to you, "What should I be looking at in terms of?" Um, what's important to adapt, what do you recommend? Well, I think I would have to start with a conversation with, with, with get to know the person and find out what about their house isn't working for them. Because this is such an individual thing, I might have a few suggestions having seen their house of what I would prefer or, or, or what most people would prefer. But I'm constantly surprised and interested in what people choose so I'd, I'd be probing, as I say, what about your house doesn't work very well? Is it that you go upstairs more times than you like? Is, is it that your dining table isn't in your kitchen? Is it, is it about carrying food from one room to the other? Is it about conflict with other family, you know, not being able to find a, a quiet space? And that might lead to more soundproofing between rooms, uh, for example. It might not even be a change of function of room. It might just be better soundproofing be between spaces. It might be not very good access to the garden or balcony and that may or may not be fixable so i think in in that particular scenario when you're talking to someone who isn't entirely happy with their home that the, the starting point is a conversation with them so many of my clients now the ones who are buying houses and extending but also the ones who are building new houses they talk about the soundproofing all the time and it's the soundproofing between the kids rooms and the and their rooms are the same person between the neighbour's house and your house. And, and on the whole, people mind much more about the lack of soundproofing than they do visual privacy. We're re relatively relaxed about being overlooked on the whole, but sound nuisance from next door, even or even within the, the home, as Mark says, is something you can't really control very easily at all. You can't remove yourself from it. And the more it happens, the bigger it becomes. It becomes this. Yes. Yeah, yes. That, that one small sound very quickly becomes something which is unbearable. Yeah. So it dominates the home then and makes it unpleasant to live in. So obviously we're talking about, broadly speaking, changes that, if they're structural changes, they're only going to be changes that people that own properties can make. So if you're renting a space and you're not very comfortable in it and you're wanting to maybe create more privacy in it, for example? What kinds of things can you do that aren't permanent? For renters who are in, let's say, the cities, one of the biggest things is the screening from greenery. One of the most frustrating things, I think, for renters is that some renters can't hang things in the wall. And that's definitely something which, yeah, if they can't, they should be able to. Um, because that's, something, that's a way you can sort of adapt your space and make it more personal. So yeah, if you can hang things in the wall, do it. And if you can put some plants in there, even better. 
And what about sharing space? Because Julia, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, this idea of many people don't live in a traditional family unit anymore. It's not just the nuclear family that lives in a property. And we know that about one in 10 homeowners, for example, share ownership even of a property. So with lots of people co-living, so to speak, how else might your home need to be adaptable in those cases? Well, it's very early days in this country for co-living, but I do think it has huge potential. And and interestingly, a lot of that potential, I think, is among older people who might find themselves alone and don't relish that prospect, but don't feel ready to move into a more institutional setting or, or live with only old other people. You know, that's not the only market, but I think it is one. And I think to share a home successfully particularly as an older adult you need a very nice and quite distinct private domain within the home as well as shared spaces where you can choose to come together so it is about that choice about when to be completely alone but in the knowledge that you're still living with someone else which is a very comforting thought in in itself it means that you know, at any time, you've got a, a friend on <laughs> on tap, if you like. And then spaces which are neutral and, and shared by everyone in that shared household, which provides very different opportunities again. And it's about that balance and that separation, I think. If we think about younger sharers, one of the biggest issues for them is, I think, queuing for the bathroom. Most of us these days have shared house at some point in our lives, I certainly have as a student, and whilst it was quite good fun, I do remember getting very frustrating queuing for the bathroom, and and actually it's quite difficult in most homes to add an extra bathroom, and for renters it's just not feasible. It would only be something that the landlord would do, and he or she would need to be persuaded to do so, I think. So renters are a bit stuck. Again, if I go back to when, when I was renting, we always had at least one shared space, either a kitchen dining room or a living room. And that does make an enormous difference because it gets you out of what is otherwise basically your bedroom. And I really feel for people who are, you know, in HMOs or any situation where they only have one room at their disposal. I think that's that's a big ask. You get very fed up with the same space all day and the same view and I think it's very important to our well-being that we have different areas that we can use for different activities. I think it's, that's literally the nail on the head. With these shared houses, it is so difficult. And I always feel like the key is for, the, for you to feel secure in that house. Like If you feel safe in that house and you, and you feel like safe around the people around you, you will use them spaces more. But if you don't feel secure in this house, you'll just spend your time in the room. And it's such a sad thought that you that someone would have to, like Judith says, stay or spend most of their time within this small space. It could be like 10, 11 square meters. And it's, it's not designed for your day-to-day living. It's designed for you to, to, to sleep and, and then to get out of there. So, um, yeah, it's about feeling secure, I feel like. Hmm. I suppose one of the things that is difficult, as you've just mentioned there, is planning for things that you don't know are going to happen. So maybe you're buying a house and you're adamant you don't want children and then a child comes along or or illness comes along and you need to make the house wheelchair accessible or then COVID comes along, you know, something none of us were planning for and many people are stuck working from home when they don't have a good space for it. 
what kinds of things can we predict generally for the population will happen when we're building homes? Are there a couple of things that we can concentrate on? I genuinely believe that working from home is here forever or is here for a long time now. Because even with our company, we're talking about this. It's going to be a weekly thing because it, we've proven it works. It, it gets people off the commute. So I think it's planning that space where you can work from home. And also for the that, that level access. So your ground floor, you want to be able to live on a ground floor in the future at some point. And it's just so important because if you can't live in the ground floor, you have to sell your house at some point. So I'm a firm believer of this bedroom on the ground floor. Mm. I'm a firm believer of this working from home is, is here for a long time. Julia, what do you think about that? Planning for events we don't know are going to happen. I think I mostly agree. I mean, certainly our needs and preferences change over time. As you say, you know, having one baby makes a big difference. Having two babies <laughs> makes a double difference. Anyone who's lived alone know that, knows that when a partner moves in, a lot changes. We all manage to fill up a wardrobe on our own. In moves a boyfriend and where do his trousers go? But, <laughs> but I do think it's a balance. I don't think it's particularly sensible or desirable to aim to spend all of our lives in the same home. I would never advocate tipping mm. someone out, you know, but actually we do mostly start life as a single adult. Most of us become couples. Many of us have children. And at some point, children leave. That's getting later. That's another thing we could talk about. But we find ourselves back to two people again, and eventually we're back to one person. And I think, particularly as we age, we have a sort of responsibility, I think, to consider whether it would be sensible to move to a more suitable home. But that's not, that's not to say that we shouldn't be building in features that are age-friendly and that help us stay at home, you know, in our home for a good long time. I'm just not quite sure that it's sensible for us all to aspire never to move, partly because I think actually... A lot of older people, particularly when they find themselves alone, would have a better life living in uh, a place with other people around them. It's about giving people the option, I'd say. Mm. And and the option for that extra five years or the, uh, in the house that, which they, they, they grew their family in, there definitely will become a, come a point where you will need to move on to the, to, to the next, like or downsize or, or to the next location. But it's giving yourself that option. So you may if you had that extra space on the ground floor that, that you could transform just, just by simply having a shower and a bath in that there downstairs bathroom, you've given yourself an extra five years in this house, which you didn't want to leave mm. just yet. So it's about giving yourself them potential options, I'd say. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I haven't bought a house yet, so I'm still in that stage of thinking when I get one, what am I even going to be looking for? So I'm going to take the chance to ask you both, actually. I have a fiancé and I'm planning on ha having a family with him. So if I'm thinking about a house that would suit two adults and two children, what should I be looking for? It all depends, doesn't it? But it is lovely to have a garden with children. So if you can afford a house, that feels ideal compared with an apartment, but many families manage happily in an apartment mm. and we can talk about features that make that more palatable. But, but there is no substitute for a garden. You're obviously going to be looking for at least two bedrooms. And it's quite interesting because most two-bedroom houses have very 
very small living spaces because developers, I'm talking mainstream developers here, they like stacking footprints, don't they? So the squeeze mm. is on the ground floor because you, you've got a toilet, you've got a living space, you've got a kitchen, you've got a, an eating space. And upstairs, all you've got is two bedrooms and a bathroom. So if you buy a typical two-bedroom house, you're quite likely to be quite squeezed on the ground floor, but relatively generous bedrooms. If you can afford a three-bedroom house, again, because they still like to stack compatible floor plans, you'll find the living space goes up, as you would expect, because it's sitting above it is three bedrooms, not one. I think it would be very sensible for developers to start building some homes the size of a three-bed house, but with two bigger bedrooms to give people the choice. I mean, our children chose to share a bedroom until they were about nine and 11, maybe a bit less than that, eight and 10, perhaps. And and they loved it. Yeah. How easy is it to put a wall into a room if you want to divide a room? As long as there's two doors in that room. So if there's one door, it's hard. But each door you'd want to have an exit onto a hallway. And that's got connotations with like fire and everything else. You don't want to move from a room to a room to get out to your, your protected hallway. Mm. But apart from that there, it, it, it can be done. Well, it's incredibly important to have two windows as well, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. can sometimes cut in a new window. But this is my, my real bugbear with studio flats that only have one window. And it's I, I noticed from the, the research that triggered this conversation, the lowest satisfaction rates amongst those who responded were people living in office to residential conversions which typically offer studio flats just a single room almost always with one window and and that that doesn't give you anywhere else to go so I I would I would definitely ban those (laughs) I think two habitable rooms as a minimum is civilized you know however nice your room is it's it's still better to have an alternative space that gives you a different outlook just just resets your mindset somehow and and even if you're indoors all day it, it's worth something yeah. and to be able to open two windows and get that sort of fresh air flowing through mm. is, yeah it's, mm. it's inv- invaluable yeah that, that makes a lot of sense just to talk a bit about adapting for a family how can you make sure your home grows with you well you're the perfect candidate you, you're looking to have a family and you want this house to be like the right spaces for your family and I, I always say to, to any of my clients who are, are looking to, to buy a house and they, they say to me in the next five ten years I'm looking to increase my family and, and I always say whenever you go to your terraced house anywhere in, in the UK walk into your back garden and look back at the elevations of all the terraced houses you'll be able to see what extensions and dormers and what's going on there and if, if both your neighbours are both extended out by, say, four metres, you pretty much know that it's a safe bet that you can do that as well. So you're sort of locking in there a sort of a four metre extension to your house. So it's always good to see what's going on around you in the area. So you're looking at a good precedence of expansions of the home. Yeah, I'd never thought about that. And it, it's simple. It's simple. And even whenever I, I walk around houses looking for myself as well, it's it's something I always do. It's quite interesting as well that you'll see a lot of different things going on in the area with, with space and dormers and, and extensions. I, I couldn't agree more with Julia's point about green space and gardens. It's, and if you can't get that, just get, if you can get close to a park, it's indispensable. And 
I think that's proven even more so in in, in recent times in, in this sort of this new world we're in. And now, after this conversation, you should be looking at the open plan living. It, it does it have the ability to 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 be closed off in five years time? Like, do you have two doors into the space? So, looking for that space, like, do, can it have two uses in in the next few years? And can you put that wall in? Does it have lots of windows? So yeah, so it's about trying to be as flexible as possible. And you can get sliding walls these days. Yes, I was going to ask mm. about those. How do they work? Well, they're just like big doors that that slide into a pocket in in the wall. So you you might have a slightly thicker um, wall right. than normal, but out of that you can pull a a large or small door, and it can be transformational. You know, very very easily. They used to be a bit clunky and often get stuck sliding doors, but technology's moved on um, quite a lot. Just in terms of other tips looking to expand a family home have a look at the attic and see whether that's stuffed full of roof timbers which um, would make it probably quite expensive and possibly impossible to convert to another room but if it isn't full of timbers or, or water tanks then that's a possibility and in that case look at where there's potential to extend the stair to provide safe access to a new room in the roof. We certainly did that in our house and made use of the attic space. With designing new housing, there are many ways you can facilitate future extensions. And again, I think this is something we should be more upfront about with when we produce our design. So for a rear extension, one of the most expensive elements is knocking the hole in the back wall and inserting a steel lintel to hold up the building after you've pushed through and put another room on the back. You could hide that lintel in the house right from the start for probably less than £1,000. And that doesn't make much sense unless people know that possibility is there, which is where it comes back to how we can show prospective buyers what's possible in the future as well as what they're getting at the moment and I think that's something you know it's an area we should work harder Mm. on you can also design I mean most people still like to have a parking space we've done we've designed a range of housing which has a carport to the side of the house but that's specifically designed to be suitable for a, a side extension in the future as well and as long as you think about it at the start which of course we have then as Mark pointed out you can allow for accessing that new room in the future without having to walk through another room and that's obviously how we approached it in this case. Uh, and future proofing it's an unbelievably smart thing to do at the very start like, like you're saying but I know that's not something which is done as much in like the sort of private sector mm. but again if you have the timbers cut a certain way you could literally have a chair to put in there very quickly so there's so many ways you can't future proof us. Yeah. But it, I think it's even homes lived in by young people really ought to think about more future proofing, even uh, not least for older people, because we're sociable, aren't we? we? We want to be able to invite friends and family into our homes. And some family members will be older people and and some of those will be wheelchair users. So I think... You know, even if you're not thinking of an older person living with you at any point in the foreseeable future, you're going to want your grand and your, your granddad and your parents to be able to visit you. And they're going to want to do that, aren't they? And the benefits of that as you get older, your options do reduce. You, you know, you, the, 
the worry about will I manage to get on the toilet? What happens if I can't get upstairs? Or it's it mm. becomes incredibly important that you can at least fa- visit family and and enjoy a relaxed break with them. Yeah. And I can imagine, obviously, this is very important for people with any kind of accessibility issues. You know, we should be thinking about our space as being able to invite anybody who's disabled in, shouldn't we, without having to, you know, worry about if a wheelchair can get into our homes or not. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, it's it's a matter of degree. I think it would be a big ask to expect everyone to have an installed stairlift. So many homes will not provide, or houses in particular, won't provide easy access to the upstairs rooms. And I think, you know, we have to accept that. But there's much less excuse for not making the ground floor accessible. What we try and do for all our new build projects is to have that level access. So level access, no steps up to that front door. Um, And all the drainage is worked out, that's fine. But I I can only imagine having that level access from the, the front gate to the front door, to that living space, to the bathroom. It's it just takes away the stress from people who are uh, in a wheelchair. So, yeah, uh, for me, it's having that, that that one level access across the floor is it's vitally important and something w- which we rate very highly in all of our projects. Julia, so in terms of age-proofing homes, I know we can't plan for everything, but what are some of the practical things that we should be considering? Well, I think it's really important that we focus on things that are difficult to do later. Um, when we're designing a new home. And one of the most obvious examples is wide doors internally, not too wide because they can get in the way, but wide enough to take a wheelchair, particularly on the ground floor. And it's such a simple thing just to add, whether it's 50 millimetres or 100 millimetres, depend what, what size you need, a wheelchair can get through a, an opening of 750 millimetres quite easily. And many older buildings provide just less than that. And, and there's no excuse for new homes not providing that extra little bit of space that, that actually we all appreciate anyway. Our furniture's getting bigger, isn't it? So, so what's not to like? It's not just about ageing. But that's, that's a good example of something very simple to do at the beginning. But if you don't do it, it can be extremely expensive in the future. Another one is allowing for a level access shower in a bathroom. So, for example, you can install a a floor gully in the bathroom of a home under the bath and you might never use it, but it's a simple thing to do when you're building the home. And if it does become necessary, somebody who can't um, access a bath anymore or even a step-in shower, you can take out the bath and there's your floor gully ready for someone to have a shower without having to step up. Okay, perfect. I'd never even thought of that. Yes. Conversely, there are things that you don't need to worry about at the start because they're um, easy to do later. So, for example, people living with dementia often value colour contrast within the home. We're advised to make the toilet seat a different colour from the rest of the room. Mm. So it stands out as a reminder that that's, that's where you go when you need a wee. We don't need a red toilet seat until we do, if you see what I mean. So it's good to be aware of the, you know, how these things help when the time comes. Exactly. And I, I think the key to the success of everything is getting this right at the, at the design stage. It's kind of our responsibility as the, as the architect to get it right, to understand our client's needs. So it's about, yeah, nailing that at the very, very start. 
easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, and, and just just one thing to add there. Even before that, it, there's one there's one important thing is which is to use an architect in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> Most of the new housing built in this country today hasn't seen an architect from start to finish. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's a great note to end on. Julia, Mark, thank you. So if you want to make sure your home is adaptable, remember the size of your space is less important than what you can do with it. If it's not flexible, you won't be as happy in it. Think about the people that will live in it after you and build alternative layouts into the title deeds if possible. Remember, open plan living isn't always the best option for families. And don't forget that we all get old. A downstairs bathroom or shower is much easier to install before you really need it. Want to find out how happy your home is? Just go to resi.co.uk happy underscore homes and take our survey. Bye for now. <laughs>